Welcome to the Leading Voices with ULI, a podcast of the Urban Land Institute. In this podcast series, we interview city builders who use innovative approaches to create healthier, more economically vibrant communities with character and a high quality of life. These leaders provide inspiration to those of us looking to play a role in building better cities. Hi, I'm Matt Sleppin, a longtime member of ULI and one of its foundation governors. I founded Terra Search Partners, a real estate-focused recruiting firm, about 10 years ago. And as part of my own leadership journey, I've been lucky enough to form relationships with the leaders in the real estate and land use industry. A few weeks ago, I had the opportunity to speak with Egbert Perry of Atlanta, Georgia. Egbert is the chief executive officer of the Integral Group, a for-profit development investment company that works in the areas of urban revitalization, infill development, smart growth, and public-private partnerships. As a for-profit with a mission, the company strives to meet twin requirements of creating value and rebuilding the fabric of communities while also providing solid returns to shareholders and investors. Egbert grew up on the island of Antigua and came to the United States on a scholarship to finish high school. He then earned a bachelor and master's in engineering from the University of Pennsylvania and an MBA from their Wharton School. He's an emeritus trustee at Penn. He's also the current board chair of Fannie Mae. Egbert's life story is an inspiration. We had a wide-ranging conversation on how he came to the United States, his career, and his work at Integral. I hope that you enjoyed the discussion as much as I did. Egbert, tell us briefly about your company and the types of projects that you do. Well, you know, Integral develops urban infill apartments and larger mixed-use and mixed-income communities in cities around the country. And uh, we work with public entities and civic leaders to address important housing and community development issues in the communities. I will say that we are private, we're for-profit, we're urban, and we're mission-driven. But in some respects, I kind of think of us as a purple unicorn. (laughs) No one has ever seen a unicorn, and the search for a purple unicorn certainly will be even more futile in effort. So why the metaphor? Um, I think on one end of the spectrum, while we do community development and create holistic uh, mixed-income communities and mixed-income developments that serve a mix of market and affordable households, um, and we do that nationally, so that is one part of the work we do. At the other end of the spectrum, we do large-scale, high-density, urban infill market rate development and large commercial real estate projects. So the idea that a firm does both of those, given the very different cultures that are required to execute on those programs, is what sort of makes us a unicorn. And then... And the rest of it, why a purple unicorn is probably has everything to do with the concept of market permission. So theoretically, you don't often find minority firms in the commercial real estate space. And so as a national um, firm of, of some scale, we're still relatively small, but at some scale, uh, 
we really don't have market permission to be in the commercial real estate space. That's still somewhat of a um, pretty private um, industry sector. Our community development operation works, our teams work in certain parts of the market, commercial real estate on the other, but we collaborate to create pretty good workforce housing solutions in, in markets that are challenged. And today we work in several cities in California, we're in Denver, we're in Dallas, and obviously throughout the Southeast, particularly headquartered in Atlanta. So we're pretty spread out with the work that we do, and we're doing it in a lot of geographies. When you think of market permission, if we decided tomorrow we wanted to be in the auto manufacturing business, the market doesn't give us permission to do that. We have no history, no track record in that. It's a very small club. But if we, the same is true at some level when you're talking about a minority business in commercial real estate, because that's also a rarity. And so you have to work a little harder to earn the market permission to be received in that space. As I said, it's really a private, it's very private, very heavily relationship driven. And if you haven't been, if you don't have years or a generation of relationships in that space, you're sort of a newbie. So the market doesn't give you permission to be there. So we walk in sort of assuming that we have a steeper climb than everyone else, that we sort of aren't perceived to have the right to be at the table until we do something smart and creative. And at the same time, that others that don't look like us sort of have the predetermined right to be at the table until they do something not so smart and go the other way. So, so it is definitely a chip you have to have on your shoulder and sort of be prepared to work a little harder, take a little bit more flack before you ever receive the stamp of approval. But, you know, that's the world we live in. Eventually the world will change. But in the meantime, we just try to do what we do. So I have a question. How did you get from Antigua to Philadelphia and then ultimately to Atlanta? Well, you know, I was very fortunate. I benefited from the generosity of a wealthy New York businessman who had a love for both Antigua and a boarding school in New York that I eventually attended. Um, while I was at the boarding school, high school, I applied and was admitted to the University of Pennsylvania. And then when you got to the University of Pennsylvania, you studied engineering, so you have undergraduate degree and a master's degree in engineering, and then went into business. So kind of talk about that path a little bit. All of us in the family tend to be quantitatively inclined. So one Sunday, as one of my pastimes, as a result of having received a package of botanical encyclopedias back home from my older brother, who had already, one of my older brothers, who had already come up to the States for college and sent back a book of botanical encyclopedias to us, we would spend Saturday, Sunday afternoons just flipping through of all things, the pictures. And I remember seeing a picture of a suspension bridge and I asked my father, what profession does that? 
and he said, civil engineers. I'm not sure how he knew, but he said civil engineers. And I said, okay, that's what I'll study. And so it was way back then. I didn't know what it was, but it sounded cool, and I remembered the suspension bridge. So when I eventually went away to college, it was certain that I was going to study civil engineering. Now, I've not designed or built any suspension bridges, but it worked for me. And question, if you think forward into your career, Hal has, having had the engineering background, benefited you in your business life? Oh, tremendously. I think the engineering, I think engineering teaches you, you have to solve problems. You have to dissect or diagnose problems, set them up, and work through a solution. And while the solutions tend to be more black and white in terms of how you study engineering, we know that the world's problems are more gray than black or white, but um, at least the idea and approach and methodology to dissecting complicated issues and trying to convert them into solvable problems is something that you learn just by going through the engineering school. And so that approach applies in many facets of life. So I think it was invaluable and a good way, a good foundation on which to build a career. Absolutely. Well, I bet particularly in real estate where people are building things for you and uh, (laughs) so you could probably manage the process a little bit more intelligently than some others can. I think it's absolutely correct. And real estate (laughs) is by virtue of it's, it's sort of the right blend of creativity, business, and at the same time, design and construction. If you think about the typical development budget, probably 70 to 75% of the dollars in it tends to be construction costs. So the idea that a physical plan is a very big part of your development budget means that having an understanding of that discipline is also something that could serve you well in that career. Okay, so then you graduated, and then you went and you joined the H.J. Russell Company, and you stayed there for how long, and and how did you help them grow, and what did that do for you, and then how did that move you into starting your own company? Well, I I joined the H.J. Russell and Company in January of 1980, and I was there for 13 years. Um, I got a tremendous amount from Herman Russell, who I would say a lot of people use the term mentor, and some of them use it probably inappropriately. He really was my mentor. He um, gave me an opportunity I wouldn't have gotten anywhere else. I was 24 years old when I joined the firm. And I remember him asking me to put together a business plan for the company. Not that I really knew what I was doing, but (laughs) I did one, took five or six months. And I remember presenting it to him around October or so. But what I am sure of is in November, he called me and asked me, um, he told me that he liked the plan and that the beginning of the following month, he was going to put me in charge of as president of H.J. Russell Construction Company. And that was the primary 
business at the time. And so by then I had turned 25, so I was a much more mature 25-year-old, given given the helm of a company, blank sheet of paper, and, you know, his, I remember asking him, and this is a little bit funny, and I'll try not to be as crude as it was said, but um, all in good good taste. He said, I I turned around and said, okay, I, I hear you, but what's the job description? Not exactly that question. <laughs> and he said, job description? Are you sure you want a job description? I said, eh, under the circumstances, I think so. He said, okay, here's the job description. I'm going to give it to you verbally, not in writing. You're president of the company. Run the damn company. Make sure you don't lose any of my damn money or it's your ass. That's your job <laughs> And literally... That's how I stepped into a leadership position. I was there for 12 more years. Um, over time, we reorganized the company a few times and brought all of the operations under one umbrella. And in 88, took the whole thing, pulled the whole thing together, and I was president of the overall company. And by 1992... We had gone from ten million a year in nineteen eighty to two hundred million a year in ninety two and we were the third largest black owned business in the United States. And I I would say I grew up professionally and from a leadership perspective at HJ Russell and Company due in large part to Herman Russell and the opportunity that he gave me. It's an unbelievable story. It must have been a heck of a business plan. <laughs> Truth be told, as I, I have never been able to find it, but what I remember of it, it really was not that impressive. <laughs> it couldn't have been because I didn't know enough to have made a very impressive plan. But I, I, think, I think he saw somebody that had no aversion to work and hard work and had a decent head on his shoulders and said, okay, those two things together, okay, maybe. But even at that, you know, I look at it and I said, I said to myself often, what he did for me, I probably would not have had the foresight to do for a young Egbert or someone else. So that was a pretty bold and visionary move since it happened to work out fine. Where did you start your own company? What what made that happen? You know, I as you get further on in life and you start trying to figure out what it is you're supposed to be doing, the one thing that never left me, I always tell people I grew up in heaven on earth in Antigua. Didn't know it was heaven on earth. I remember my yes. very strict parents may not have made it feel as though it was heaven on earth, but what I take, took away from that is I truly lived in that proverbial African village, the village where, you know, it's a, the saying goes, it takes a village to raise a child. I grew up in that, and I had a lot of adults around me that were committed to my excelling, and it was clear in just about every facet of 
life there. We didn't have deep divisions. Everybody was striving to make it to get their kids off to school and so on. So we all shared somewhat of a common bond, and the adults looked out for the children or the, the young ones as if they were all part of an extended family. So I grew up in that, and we were not well off at all. In fact, we were very poor. But I didn't know that I was poor until I came to the United States. And so, for me, poverty was not a crime. I think in this country, poverty is a crime. If you're born poor, especially if you're born black or brown, I think you're already pre-sentenced to a certain low trajectory, if not flat to negative, before you even come out of the womb. And so over my 13-year career, I did enough construction and development and so on, and the observation was that there were a lot of people who looked like me, but for their, because of their economic circumstances, um, coupled with how they looked from an appearance standpoint, they were already pre-sentenced. And my commitment was to try and create communities in the urban markets where um, people that had those specific backgrounds or attributes didn't necessarily have to be subjected to the worst educational opportunities, worst living environments, and so on, and therefore having their potential unable to be realized. And so I was driven more out of a passion to do that. And my closest friend and I, with him, same one that convinced me to get out of the PhD program in engineering <laughs> of the business school, um, who was a 12-year banker with Bank of New York, he convinced me as well, that I should pursue this passion based on a conversation he and I had where we were bantering back and forth on how we would change urban communities. And I remember him saying, given how freely and extemporaneously you can talk about this stuff and the passion that comes out there, you should create a company and do this for your the rest of your life. That's what you're driven to do. And I said, well, I'll do it if you would do it as well. And we both agreed, and we quit our respective jobs a year later and started Integral. So we were 50-50 partners and created the Integral Group, born out of that. Well, and so the company was started with a mission and a vision to do that work. Yes. And so talk about the entrepreneurial bent and the business bent and the mission bent and how they work together. I want to use the word seamlessly, but that's not a, that's not a possible word for that. <laughs> no, it's not seamless. We'd like to think of us. Um, yeah. The, you know, the, we very quickly distilled all those notes that we took when we sat down at a very important day on a bench in New York and were, talking back and forth about what this work would look like. And that, that work we distilled into a mission statement that said, we're going to create value in cities. In other words, what we do is going to be uplifting for cities, the focus being cities, urban communities. 
and rebuild the fabric of communities. So it wasn't just about doing deals in the cities, but it was a certain kind of work. And at the same time, we were committed equally to rebuilding or re-knitting the fabric of communities that were being split asunder. So that was our mission. And what we said was the way beyond the traditional, what is the vision, what are the core values, and so on. We did those, but then it got down to, okay, how would we deliver on this? And it basically meant the skills we had were very much around developing physical assets. So beyond visioning new communities, we could then focus on making a living doing the vertical development, but partnering with all of the other key strategic partners necessary to put the quality into quality of life. So if you're creating a holistic or comprehensive community, you better have an education solution, a housing solution, retail solution, all the things that people with choice take for granted. And so to do that in communities that were underserved and in some cases isolated, you needed to be able to partner with proven providers of some of those things. We weren't in the school business. We were not in early childhood development business or health and wellness facilities and schools and so on and so forth. So if we wanted those things as integral parts of the community, we better figure out a way to have partners that would help us deliver on those elements. So that was it. So we were meshing, we called it doing well while doing good. Not doing good while doing well, but doing well while doing good. The core objective was to do something positive and responsible. But you couldn't do that consistently and continuously unless you were able to pay your bills. So you had to figure out a way to do well. So that became our mantra among ourselves and within the organization, and it's still true today. So that's, that's how we tried to blend the ability to be a private, for-profit, mission-driven, urban real estate development and investment company. All of those adjectives are important because we are private, not public. We are for-profit, not non-profit. We are mission-driven. We're urban, urban-focused. And yep. we, you know, and real estate and investment and development is the core of how we execute on what we're doing. My view was I grew up in a mixed-income community. We didn't call it that. But we all sort of next door may have been a doctor and the other side may have been a sanitation worker. We were merchants and so on. But we all had a common value system. We all were trying to get, or they were trying to get their kids to get to a decent school and make a way in life. And so there was a common set of values that drove the community. So our premise was, we could do that mixing um, as long as we could populate the new community with people that shared 
a common vision independent of their economic circumstances. So because of that, you were talking a foreign language to bankers and politicians and so on, and even if it sounded great, the banking community thought you were crazy as hell. It didn't make any sense. How do you finance that, and why would you put money at risk on something like that that ha that was fraught with mixing not just affordable and market rate units, but you were going to have some of those people, as in public housing eligible households in the community, and public yes. housing had such a negative stigma, why would that ever make any sense? So you were constantly overcoming the race and class bias that is so much at the core of the issues in this country. And by the way, race is sort of obvious. Class transcends race. So whether you were black, brown, or white, the the negative view of lower class, socioeconomic class, was there. I mean, there was somewhat universal objection to the idea of mixing along class lines. And then, but race lines, you also had that. And so in an Atlanta, which I think at the time was probably close to 65% African-American in the city limits. Race and class were very much holding hands throughout that whole process. And so here we were talking about doing this in one of the most segregated, uh, surprisingly, segregated um, communities in the country. And it was, the headwinds were from all different directions. Maybe that gets back to your village in Antigua that you grew up with, because that may be the vision that this started with. That is correct. In fact, my my partner and I, when we sat down there, the when he asked me a question, we had driven through Harlem on the way to the east side of Manhattan, and he said, okay, tell me, man, why does that look like that and this look like this? What would it take to convert that into this? And I said, well, that's a complicated question, but let's just say, what if we answered the question, what would it take for us to want to live there? And the minute we put ourselves in the solution, the answers or the elements of the solution became pretty obvious, because all you were really doing was saying, okay, if you want to have a nice, healthy, nurturing, and sustainable community, what do you need? So you need great educational options, and by then we recognized that you had to deal with crib decay. You need to deal with good care education. We, we needed to have housing that was connected to the fabric of the surrounding neighborhoods and not isolated. We needed to have access to our connectivity to jobs. So it would be nice to find the adjacent or neighboring drivers of economic activity and see if you could find a way to connect that community to that job base. You would have to have something for health and wellness and recreation for young people. So 
we started laying out all of those things because we were inside of the solution. We were creating solutions for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And and it sort of wrote itself as a as a script. Uh-huh. And, do you think, and so do you think it's because do you think it's because you grew up in a village that you could see that pathway versus those of us who grew up on one side of the divide or the other in in traditional US communities? Um, it's it's compli- complicated in the sense that the answer is yes in part. I think another part of it was because I grew up poor but didn't know I was poor. And and when I talk about poverty, I want to put it in this perspective because in Antigua, I actually thought we were rich. I didn't realize that, you know, we didn't have the the one percent and the ninety nine percent. We had everybody was bundled in a pretty tight band, um, and the rich may be making a thousand dollars more um, a month or even a year than the next guy, but it looked like they were well off, and so. Mm-hmm. So because of that tight band, we really didn't have the opportunity to have as much um, fraction in our balkanization that you have in this country. So when I came here, and I say I came and I was poor and didn't realize I was poor, my father had sent me in an envelope by the time I got to the private school. There was an envelope waiting for me with my name in it. It was, and the return address was my father's. And it had $20 U.S. in it. This is 1970. Mm-hmm. That's like $54 back home. And right. I got it. I cried. I wrote him a letter back and said, I know you can't really afford to send me this much money. Um, I'll be fine. And I sent the money back. Of course, I cried two days later when I realized how expensive things were. And then I wish I had the $20. But... But that puts it in perspective. So I didn't even know that I was that poor. Okay? And uh-huh. and so I looked back, and in, on one hand, I said, okay, so I never felt as though I was missing something growing up, notwithstanding um, the economic circumstances. And I got the best education you can get in Antigua. And at the time, it was the cost was $33. I remember it distinctly because three times was almost $100. $33 a term. There were three terms a year. Mm-hmm. And, and that was Eastern Caribbean dollars. One Eastern Caribbean dollar is 38 cents U.S. Mm-hmm. So, so I was, when I enrolled in school, that was the cost the first in the beginning. Now it grew over time, but that tells you if you could get to a decent educational opportunity and live in a safe or healthy and nurturing community, you've solved 90% of the problem. And so that's what I think drove me. And I was not looking to create a plantation or a compound where somebody would say, oh, this is their community. This is their thing. What I was trying to do was we we committed that we were going to mainstream poor people. 
going to help people without means fit into the normal mainstream of society, not to further balkanize them and be able to stake claim like they're somehow your poor people. Yeah. And so so that that I think is something that I know I wouldn't have wanted for me. I'm still my father and mother's child and the fact that somebody takes away some of the barriers that are likely to hold me back doesn't all of a sudden make me feel as though I'm no longer my mother and father's child. I'm this person's piece of an experiment. So I wanted to make sure that whatever we did, we were in fact creating communities where people were just mainstream so that a generation later, or for that matter, the kid growing up there now doesn't know that but for this quote-unquote experiment, his economic circumstances would have been such that he would have been born into and grew up in public housing and not have the options that he has today and so on. So mainstreaming was critical. Of course, we're on the eve of a big election in our country, and some of the most painful political discourse or lack of discourse we've ever had. Uh Kind of talk a little bit about these issues from your standpoint and how they get solved better or how the public dialogue is more fruitful on these topics going forward? Um, well, there are some, you know, there, there are some things that if, if as an immigrant and a black person, and I'm both of those, <laughs> if somehow somebody has to vilify both of those bodies in order to get to the stage and have a chance in a party, then that party is clearly not for me. And I think that what we have done is found a way to create a dialogue that's all around who you dislike and who you are going to target as negatives and negative cells. And so the media actually plays a very strong hand in that because as people compete for ratings and viewership and so on, the the most sensational, the most offensive, the most attention-getting um, a person can be, the more they're likely to help drive ratings. There's nothing I say or just said that will change that because it's core to our capitalist system. And so it's unfortunate that there are not enough principled bodies that care to help work on being a part of the solution and changing the narrative. But I I sort of look at it as there's freedom of the press, but when the press is no longer the provider of information truly fair and balanced and educating the public, but in fact, when the press becomes part of the entertainment arena, you've really lost. You've lost your way. Because 
there's no place to go to at that point to get facts. Facts are we have we have developed sort of a um, a very distant or broken relationship with facts, and they're almost irrelevant at this point. So I hate to see the the tremendous let's just say hostility that seems to drive the current election and how people are willing to tap into the worst elements of human beings or the worst aspects of the way in which human beings conduct themselves and what they they fall prey to. But that's what we have. So we are finding a way to balkanize different segments of the country. And I think long-term, that's, that's a very dangerous road to go down because even when you win, you really haven't won. You're now um, a strong man over a divided country. And, you know, we, we talk about Saddam Hussein and Tito from Yugoslavia and Omar Gaddafi and so on. When you remove them and you you let people be people, you realize how many factions there are that you have to keep together. Well, we're now, from the top down, we're trying to create factions instead of bringing people together. So we are absolutely going going backwards. Very, I understand that. It, and it's dynamic. interesting, because it may be dialogues like this and conversations like this and examples of people's work that are less entertaining. This has been a great conversation, maybe less entertaining than what we see on <laughs> on TV, but hugely inspirational, and it's the way that business actually works and communities work. So I want to thank you for the dialogue and for the example of, of how to live a life and create a business that has long-term sustainability and contribution. Well, Matt, thank you very much, and, and I will leave you with, uh, you had asked me way back and I said I'll come back at the end and, and respond to it when you ask how is it going and how do you manage it and I say work in progress. It yeah. is a work in progress because at any point in time the struggle between doing the most profitable thing and doing what you know is the right thing from a societal perspective those things are almost always in conflict. And if you're running a business, it suggests that you should want to do the things that's most pro- the things that are most profitable. Um, but the reason you started the business causes you to constantly have to say, okay, this could make more money, but is it in keeping uh, with that vision? And at any point in time, those things remain in conflict and you're struggling to keep the thing, the car in the middle of the road as opposed to, you know, so yep. that's, that's why it's a work in progress. It's, I agree. And it's wonderful. It's interesting in these dialogues I've had uh, for the podcast series, but other conversations, particularly with CEOs of companies, those who start their business with a vision and an understanding and a goal. And that goal is not a purely economic goal. Mm-hmm. Um, they're able to make that happen and have, you know, business success as well as uh, world success and success for their hearts. 
Well, and and the people who you bring into the organization, because as we've diversified and bring in a culture that's doing commercial real estate, which you know you you have to give your investors the returns they're looking for. So you can't be bleeding heart trying to do these nice, wonderful things and not provide the returns that investors are expecting. So mixing the commercial real estate and the community development in the same overall organization, you are forced to have to make sure you never lose your core, but at the same time, always remain respectful of the fact that somebody gave you $50 million to invest and they're looking to double their money or triple it or whatever the right returns are. So those are different projects that you yep. still have to do. Um, and the the juggling that is really the, the sort of the art and not the science. You got it. Okay. Hey, we will continue right. this conversation. I'll send you a note so we can have a dialogue separate from this. But thank you very much. This has been delightful. Matt, you're more than welcome. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this installment of the Leading Voices with ULI podcast, hosted by the Urban Land Institute. To learn more about ULI's leadership network or to join ULI as a member, please visit uli.org.